The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 22 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the bi-weekly podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Staunchly against Deadpool's nickname of the Merc with a Mouth, since Wade's mask actually covers his face and obscures his mouth entirely, I'm Adam. And wondering how many people Joe Quesada has punched out for calling him Joe Quesadilla, I'm Michael. And and joining us tonight is a gentleman whose opinions are fully articulated in more ways than one from Toylines.com and the Toylines podcast. Welcome, Tom. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. So you actually reached out to us a while back asking to be a guest on the show, but you realize we're not a Toy Fair podcast, right? At least not yet. This is about comics, baby! <laughs> yeah, I've always been into Wizard and Toy Fair and all that fun stuff. I mean, it was a great magazine. I miss it. We do too, obviously, but we are so curious to find out how you discovered that and the hobby of reading comics. So Tom, why don't you tell us your origin story? started reading comics in the late 80s. My cousin, uh, Rick, he was a huge comic book guy. Uh, he was collecting since the late 60s. Him and his mom lived downstairs from us in, in our home. And, you know, just growing up, I just jumped into his books and just started reading. And, you know, I got hooked. I mean, he had a great collection. I mean, tons of uncanny X-Men, uh, giant size X-Men number one. He was into New Gods. So when you had the choice, what did you decide you were going to start buying, or who were your favorites? Well, I always loved cartoons. My first exposure to superheroes was actually Spider-Man. So I instantly gravitated to anything Spider-Man, John Romita, especially Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man. It, it was kind of like a gateway drug, if you will. Then I got hooked on Jim Valentino's Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, I was always reading Ninja Turtles. And then um, later on in the 90s, I, I started reading a lot of independent stuff. Ethan Van Skyver's Cyber Frog was always a favorite. Creed by Trent Knuga. And then, you know, obviously all the image titles once they took off Savage Dragon, uh, Spawn, Shadowhawk. And um, the only Valiant book i ever read was exo man of war yeah I thought that was a great concept that good man favorite. good man <laughs> <laughs> but you know what though i discovered in 1998 i was reading comic books for a long time and people were always asking me what's your favorite what's your favorite number one book and i never really had an answer until this book came out superman for all seasons Hmm. Oh, it's a good book. That's a good I story. love this book. I mean, I don't know why DC ignores it, in my opinion. 
because you know they have wb animation you know every other batman book is um you know those oversized uh um, yeah. books but for some reason all seasons never gets love yeah they they just did superman man of tomorrow as a animated movie right and, and i've heard that they were thinking about doing birthright and a few other but that's when they for some reason they, they ignore and i don't really know why it's a good story oh right. i love it even the artwork i mean it's just so beautifully renditioned by tim sale yeah so i was farting around on your website earlier and i noticed you had a couple of segments about the mcfarland toys for dc i just started collecting them i've got white knight batman i just ordered batgirl the grim knight batman because i'm a big batman fan michael how many funko pops did you have to sell to afford those Oh, God, I've sold... Well, to tell you the truth, I probably at one point had almost 2,500 Funko Pops that I've sold a large portion of over time. I I think I'm down to just around 100, maybe a little bit less than 100 (laughs) at this point. Wow. Yeah. I was collecting them because, I don't know, you just get that, like, oh, it's a a new cool thing. You beanie baby fever. Oh, God, don't get me started. (laughs) But it's one of those things where it's like the Godfather. Just when you're out, they keep pulling you back in. Like, I started selling. Then they're like, ooh, they dropped the Die Hard ones. Then I start, then I was like, oh, I don't want to get those. Then they dropped the Batman uh, 89 ones. It's like, oh, I don't want those. Oh, God. <laughs> like, one of those things. It's a, it's a nightmare. But now I'm I'm all in on the McFarlane toys. I'm like, oh, boy, here we go. This is a problem. And, Tom, we know you're a big Masters of the Universe fan, according to your, your podcast, right? So how oh, yeah, often definitely. has Mattel pulled you back? <laughs> oh my god I, I never left um i started with the vintage line then we went on to uh 2000x a friend of mine uh scott knightlick created which in my opinion is the greatest toy line ever masters of the universe classics oh those are cool i've seen yeah. those oh i love them and uh yeah i just never left i mean i i'm sure one of my first words was he-man when i was born so <laughs> What's your thought about the two different animated TV series that are coming out in the next year or two? Oh, I can't wait. The Kevin Smith one is just, it was a gift wrapped up in, in heaven. In a Netflix yeah. bow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the second one, I'm, I'm actually kind of curious to see how they're going to gear this version towards children of today. So, I mean... There's obviously, you can see it from the poster, there's going to be some changes with the sword and probably his symbol, but uh, but I'm really looking forward to the Kevin Smith uh, one, Revelations. I am, I am too, I'm looking forward to that, because it's supposed to be a sort of a continuation of the original series, right? Yeah, the Filmation series, which in my opinion was you know one of the greatest cartoons ever. It was a great so, cartoon, I even agree. Though I don't personally see it as, but a lot of people say it's campy and stuff, I don't see it. I, I mean, so. that's, yeah, I grew up with it, so that's basically my He-Man. That's cool. All right. Well, you know, uh, I am curious to know what the postage is to get a letter out to Eternia, so why don't we open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. <laughs> We have somebody named Chris Olds from Cody, Wyoming, disgusted about the wizard insert cards. Oh boy, here we go. Dear wizard, my friend and I are very disgusted with your magazine. Living in Wyoming, the closest comic stop is a two-hour drive away. The only way we can get wizard is at the local newsstand. 
when I stated in a page three issue number 16 about the bloodshot insert cards that were supposed to be two Magnus versus Predator cards, it hit me. It is not fair that direct copies get three cards and the newsstands get one card. If you are only going to put one card in Wizards' newsstand copy, why not make it one card that the direct copies can't get? It's just not fair. Chris Old, Cody Wyoming. Period. <laughs> Disgusted in Cody Wyoming. Oh, well, here's what Wizard had to say to that. Wizard-produced cards are available in every outlet Wizard is sold. Be it direct market, newsstand, or through subscriptions. Bonuses, like the Predator Magnus card in issue 16, or the randomly inserted Chromium Turok cards in Wizard number 21, are only available through the polybagged issues of Wizard direct market and subscription copies. Newsstand copies are not polybagged so as to allow newsstand consumers to flip through and enjoy the book. The bonus cards are never printed with the extra flap necessary for newsstand insertion, so there's no affordable way to get them in the book. If you're still disgusted, or low on gas, get a subscription! <laughs> so disgusted. Pay for a subscription, you punk. <laughs> I do like that he called it a comic stop. My nearest comic stop. I've never heard of that. Unless it was just a typo, but... Now, also in here, Michael, you thought that we were gonna leave the X-Men versus Iron Man debate in the backyard, buried under some leaves, you know, let's just let it go, let it go, but simply not the case. So we have this guy named Doug Goldstein who pours more gas on the Iron Man-Wolverine debate with evidence, apparently. Okay. So this is an open statement to all you twisted mutant lovers out there. I assume that all of you read X-Force 21 by now and saw how James Rhodes in the War Machine armor took down all of X-Force all by himself, easily. It was no contest. Now think, if Rhodes in the War Machine armor can easily defeat X-Force, then surely Tony Stark in the real Iron Man armor can easily defeat the X-Men. So all you mindless X-Fans can stop putting Iron Man down and admit that he's the better man. Thanks for listening, Doug Goldstein. And the debate <laughs> rages on. Oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> yeah, so now we got to ask you, Tom, where do you fall on this? X-Men versus Iron Man. I've always been a big uh, Iron Man fan, so I have to give it up to Tony Stark. <laughs> I mean, granted, probably in, in an up-close fight, uh, Wolverine will go right through uh tony's armor but if tony can blast them from you know miles away there you go he's a winner there, there we go. go you heard it here folks <laughs> <laughs> send all your hate mail to toylinepodcast.com <laughs> and that is this month's willie lumpkin's mailbag so adam what do we have in our table of contents? Well, all right. Issue 22 is upon us, June 1993, featuring a Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti cover with the X-Villains. Yes, Deadpool, Sabretooth, Omega Red, Apocalypse, and in a little tiny corner in the back, Strife from X-Force. Uh, so I'm <laughs> curious for you guys, your thoughts on this cover art, this Joe Casada masterpiece, some would call? 
Depends on how big an X-Men fan you are. Tom, where do you fall on the X-Men? You chose Iron Man in the battle, but do you like X-Men? Oh, yeah, I'm a big X-Men fan. I I like the in-between X-Men. Not the original crew, but, like, the second version, the giant-sized X-Men one, you know, with Colossus, Wolverine, Cyclops, you know, all those guys. One of my favorite issues is Uncanny X-Men 275, where everyone's wearing the X-Men uniform by Jim Lee. I thought that was a great, yeah, I thought that was a great uh, issue. You know, everybody's in their school colors, if you will. You know, Professor X is back. But uh, as far as this cover, you know, I love Deadpool. I always thought Omega Red was a great villain. How about you, Michael? So I I think this cover is interesting in the sense that I like how they're kind of like melting the R and the W. I don't necessarily put Deadpool as a villain, so I don't really know why he falls there, but maybe in this time they were making him kind of a villain. It just, this is one of those things that Wizard does where we're 22 issues in, and we've really had a lot of obscure characters on the covers, and not a lot of the heavy hitters. Like, other than the death of Superman, have we seen a Superman cover yet? Not yet. It's going to be a while still. (laughs) It's so bizarre. One of the things I've always missed, and I wish Wizard would have kept it up, was in the early issues, they always had the Wizard hat. You know, on top of Spider-Man, Exo Manowar, or even the Flash, Silver Surfer. And then they went away from that for some reason. And for me, it just lost something with the wizard covers. We talked about that at one point. Uh, You told us why, I forgot. Yeah, they addressed it. Basically, the publishers, and I'm assuming it was the big two, basically said, you are confusing the marketplace by putting that different costume onto our character. So please stop. So that's really the reason it came down to it. It's like, for the creator-owned stuff, they said they left it up to the creators if they wanted to do it. But yeah, it pretty much stopped uh, pretty early on. They abandoned that trope. But you're right. That was something that did make it really unique and stand out. It was special. Uh, but yeah, but this is first time that we're getting Joe Quesada doing a cover with us. And he has an interview in this issue titled Climbing to the Top. Basically laying out what his career has been so far and where he's headed. So, Joe officially began as a lowly colorist on Nintendo Comics at Valiant. But soon he moved up to DC to pencil one of my personal favorite 90s comics, which I've talked about, The Ray. I got that signed by Joe in 1992 when I was a burgeoning comics fan. But apparently he only got that gig because the original artist had dropped out when Joe just happened to be visiting the DC offices dropping off some cover art that he had done. And then even when he did The Ray, he only did the first two issues because he said, I was young, I was excited, I overcommitted myself to too many projects. And then he's like, and then when The Ray came about people still thought it was part of the impact line of comics that dc was doing anyway so it wasn't high profile but then he went on to do the sword of azrael miniseries which is about to become very important in the batman timeline we're in and now he is drawing x factor but just as he got confirmed for that gig he had been offered a chance to do an ongoing batman series 
at DC, and he said that was actually his dream, but being a man of his word, he had to do the X Factor gig. So I wonder how Marvel felt about that when they read that in this interview. They're like, oh, well, we gotcha. But he also <laughs> mentions how in demand he is, because he is working on the aforementioned Exo Manowar number zero for Valiant. More about that at the end of this episode. He's going to be doing part of the Deathmate event that Valiant and Image are up to at this point. And also, he teases he's part of a secret Batman project for DC, which when he's probed a little bit, he admits it is related to Nightfall. And we will talk about that on episode 24, because he actually gets involved in a little bit of controversy for what he provides for Wizard in that issue. He spoils it a little bit? Yeah. Uh, actually, oh. a big spoiler that DC was not happy about. So. Oh, boy. <laughs> and uh, But then regarding Deathmate, so Joe makes this observation regarding Valiant and Image, quote, they're almost the antithesis of each other. One company is playing to the visual-oriented people, one to literary-oriented people. Looking at the two companies, is both doing so well it shows there's room for both in the market very nice now i was definitely more of a valiant guy and you said tom you were more of an image guy is that right definitely now how many of us are joe quesada guys do you guys have a favorite joe quesada project well i loved his exo manowar zero from valiant and then his stuff on uh, ash his creator owned right i always thought that was pretty good as far as like you can actually see his uh evolution as an artist the one distinct thing i always find about joe quesada is you're going to get a lot of people that are blacked out everybody's got a lot of shadow on them it's always very dramatic where you'll just see white teeth and the whites of the eyes and then they're a silhouette otherwise like he loves that look like i used to uh, buy a lot of ninjack back in the day and i was like oh yeah ninjack but yeah everything was in shadow of that book it was super uh, intense how about you michael you know what i really like and this is not a huge popular line in marvel you ever read any of the marvel knights stuff like he did like marvel knights daredevil and stuff like that i remember when he was teamed up with kevin smith on that and i remember it being a big deal but i never read it yeah no i liked it i liked it a lot i i was i was a fan that's other than that, I just mostly think of him as, like, you know, editor-in-chief in Marvel for so long that he kind of, like, he was running the store there. I feel like he had to have been the most beloved next to Stan Lee, don't you think? Everybody loves Joe. Most people do, yeah. I think they like him as a person. I think he's, like, a genuine... Seems like a genuinely nice guy. And, and not many people see Joe Quesada as a writer, but he did an Iron Man run. I believe it was, like, two arcs. It was incredible. Ah. He did all the covers, and he wrote it. It was like Tony Stark was having a breakdown, and the Iron Man armor was possessed. Really? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a really great written story by him. Hmm. I'll have to check cool. that one out, yeah. Speaking of having room in the marketplace for everybody, Malibu Comics officially announces the Ultraverse in Wizard News, stating they are doing for comics writers what Image was doing for comics artists, namely giving them creative control and financial backing for their projects, for their vision. And we will be covering the Ultraverse in more detail also on episode 24. That is going to be a big episode, everybody. So stay tuned. Two episodes from now, we're getting deep into it. Also, interesting factoid here that Wizard News reports that Milestone's hardware comic sold out of the 300,000 printed copies that they initially put out during its week of release, beating Spider-Man, Batman, and Hulk in the sales charts. So Milestone came out and they were a big deal. Soon to be a big deal again, it seems. 
Now, speaking of the X-Men, the castaway artist here, Chris Claremont, has an interview about his, quote, return to comics. After two years, he is coming through Dark Horse with a 12-issue Aliens Predator miniseries, I guess maxi-series, as Marvel used to call it with those 12-issue runs, and is going to be introducing a female Predator, which I think is really cool. That's what they should have done with that last Predator movie, mix it up a little bit, you know? Yeah, seriously. But while Claremont has done some Superman projects that have been on the back burner that are finally going to be released, he says, one that jumped out to be the most of an Elseworlds tale where Lois Lane, he says, I mean, he gives it away, at the end, she becomes Wonder Woman. Have you heard about this? Not necessarily, no, but... Maybe it didn't come out. <laughs> I mean, the most famous Elseworlds Superman story that I know is Speeding Bullets, where, where he lands in Gotham and he, he gets adopted by the Waynes and he becomes basically Bruce Wayne, but also Superman at the same time. That's the most famous Elseworlds really? story. Really? Because I have that one. I would say Red Sun is the most oh, famous. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the, you're right. My bad. Yes. I, I, when I think of Red Sun, I, even though it's an Elseworlds story, I don't... I don't because it's not a one shot like mm-hmm. a lot of other you know Elseworlds stories are one shots. It's more of like a, you know, yeah, yeah. I'll shut up. <laughs> but see, the thing is, I really like Speeding Bullets. I have that one, and I I would put that over Red Sun for pure enjoyment for me. You know, you want to hear a funny quick story about that thing? So about fifteen years ago, I was at a restaurant in my town and had to use the restroom, and they had a poster of that in the bathroom. What? And I was like, what? is this and i started like researching and looking into it and i found out about this story through a poster in a restroom at a more or less a dive bar in my town (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome you're kind of people running that bar you know it Now, this is what's so weird about Chris Claremont declaring his return to comics, because he actually goes on to say that he's transitioning away from comics into writing novels. So what was the point of calling it a return? He's like, I'm doing this thing at Dark Horse, but I I don't want to deal with it. Because he brings up his opinion that current comics, you know, editors and everybody in the industry makes it easier for an artist with a fresh new style to launch a project than a writer with a similarly new, exciting story idea, because it's a visual industry quote there is less incentive for artists to work with writers than for writers to work with artists and he seems to be a little bit bitter about that you know seeing as he as a writer has to rely on an artist to bring his words to life and he notes that this is what led to his departure from x-men he makes a point of saying that he had been writing longer than the editors that began dictating the direction of the stories had been in the industry he also claims that comics are now sold as brand names that readers will buy regardless and that the creators the writers essentially he's saying are just facilitators who crank out the product according to the editor's vision so having an established and trusted writer on the book means nothing anymore because their ideas are not valued the editor is the one who's driving everything and artists also he mentions can get a lucrative deal with advance money based on a few sketches but again writers don't have that luxury and finally claremont addresses 
the fact that he was announced at the formation of Image to be writing a book called The Huntsman with Wills Portacio on art, but since Wills wanted to do wet works instead, the project was shelved, and now neither of those projects have been released. So, uh, don't put your eggs in the Wills Portacio basket at this time. It was not a good bet. But he closes again by saying that he would rather write books, so he doesn't have to compromise his vision. <laughs> So, Chris Claremont, get out of your own butt, dude. <laughs> yeah, I know it's warm up there, but knock it off, man. <laughs> You've been drinking tonight. <laughs> oh, we're, we're feeling crazy tonight. All right. Um. Although the Huntsman did make an appearance in Jim Lee's Wildcats. Right. Yeah, it does eventually come out. And I think we're just going to have to cover it when it does. <laughs> when we hit that <laughs> point. Because was it worth the wait? We shall see. But staying on the X-Men theme and tying it into the cover. So there's an article titled An Excruciating Struggle with an X. Because you, you got to do it. But it's really just a generic piece highlighting a few of the major X-Villains over the years. You know, Sentinels, Magneto. You know, nothing really groundbreaking here but i am curious to know from you guys who is your favorite x-men nemesis because michael i know you've read quite a bit of x-men tom you as well so tom do you have somebody in mind that you're saying ah whenever this guy shows up i know it's going to be a showdown just magneto him and Professor X are two different sides of the same coin. He's wants to protect his own people, but he believes by any means necessary, whereas Professor X just wants peace and harmony. Unfortunately, sometimes peace and harmony comes at a price, and Magneto is willing to pay that price. And also, how many other villains have actually led the X-Men? Yes, and wearing a weird purple outfit with a big M on it. <laughs> what were you doing, Headmaster Magneto? Magnus? I, I love when they when he decided his name was Magnus. That just that cracks He's me up. He's got like seven different names. Like, <laughs> it, it's crazy. Uh, they, they can't decide what they want to call him half the time. You know, it, it's it's kind of tricky. Like, the, the X-Men have a lot of B-level villains and, and stuff like that, but I always felt like when Xavier became Onslaught, and like that it was it wasn't utilized properly but if that was like a much better story that would have been an incredible villain for them to have face like their hero their father in a lot of cases is like this real horrible horrible being that would really have been great but i really like it when cable comes back from the future to try to like fix something in the past and he's kind of like bad guy, good guy. He's like killing a bunch of people. But you're like, why are you wiping these people? Well, I have to because they're going to save the future. <laughs> I like those kind of stories. One of my favorite stories actually is the Messiah Complex. It's when he's got Hope Summers as like his adopted daughter and they come back to like save the universe and the timeline. It's really convoluted and stuff like that, but it's a really great story. Those are my two favorites. Sauron to me I like the fact that he's even considered a villain like because he always seems to create a problem you know they got this pterodactyl man and he's just wiping out the x-men it's like one guy you know and he can sap your energy you know, he's gonna feed off you and all that stuff so and plus you know he's usually showing up when they're in the savage land right so they're out of their element so yeah it's just like I just find him an 
interesting villain, kind of in the same vein as Bizarro. It's like kind of a weird character, a little bit tragic. He's kind of like the lizard guy who transforms into Sauron and stuff. So anyway, yeah, I, I find him to be the most engaging, seeing as I'm not a huge X-Men fan to begin with. So, But on the other side of the aisle here with the DC team, this is a, an article that is likely in response to the accusations that Wizard is anti-DC Comics. Uh, it's an article, a very long article, in fact, about the creative team changes on the three Justice League titles. So which at this time were Justice League America, Justice League International, and then a new book they're announcing called Justice League Task Force. They mentioned that Superman is dead, Batman's about to be broken, so the only big name in the JLA right now is Wonder Woman, and they're not going to do much with her to, to rock the boat. But they do mention, once again, I get excited, the Ray is going to join the team. So oh, that's boy. pretty cool. <laughs> I'm sure he made a huge impact. Yeah, really. But yeah, but to me, the most appealing idea is this Task Force book, because they say it's going to be random team-ups where Martian Manhunter assembles the right heroes for the job on single missions or an issue or two and so the first issue is being written by the spider-man scribe dave michelini after that denny o'neill is going to write a tie-in to nightfall that's going to be a story arc in the task force book so i'm just curious for you guys i mean michael if you've read justice league task force let me know but what is your favorite era of the justice league or incarnation doesn't even have to be in comics i suppose justice league unlimited the animated series where each episode had a ton of different characters and they kind of threw i love that idea and around the same time the comic books they did the same thing when it was transitioning off of brad Meltzer into mcduffie and and he was taking over they were kind of doing the same thing where they're kind of like putting different puzzle pieces together and I like that because it creates different dynamics and, and you don't have the same characters recycled over and over and over again. Tom, did you read much JLA? There's three books that stand out, but I totally agree with Michael. The My favorite era was the Paul Denny, Bruce Tim Justice League. I mean, those those stories were incredible. Even um, you were talking about Milestone, Dwayne McDuffie. He was also a writer on the cartoon show with um, yeah. Question Authority. That was one of the best episodes it's a, ever. It's a great episode. That's a really great episode. But as far as comics go, I loved Rock of Ages by Grant Morrison and Howard Porter. That's a good um, story, too. Tower of Babel with yes. uh, Mark Wade and Howard Porter. Order. And then Identity Crisis, I just totally fell in love with, with Brad Melter and Rags Morales. That's actually the book that got me back into comics after my extended hiatus between high school and college when girls came into play. And I, I need something to bring me back. That was the book that brought me back. You know, another good story, it's a very short story called Crisis of Conscience. And it's basically members of the Justice League mind wipe Dr. Light for horrible things that he had done and then batman finds out and he gets really pissed off because they tried to mind wipe him too so he, he didn't know that they did it oh it was crazy and it's a good story it's like three issues long but it's fantastic yeah i mean i've definitely read identity crisis and all of that although i like the pre-original crisis stories like late 70s you know early 80s i have a few random issues from that time and it just felt to me like that's where like the classic justice league of america kind of congealed 
pulled a little bit where it's just like, okay, it has all this history behind it. Here's the heavy hitters. They're here. Like, I've always wanted to read the Justice League of America Detroit years where they tried to like make them street level heroes and they had Vixen and they had all these characters. You know, it was a very different style. But but I, I like just kind of that classic era of the 80s before they kind of rebooted everything. So that is kind of cool. Yeah, it's, it's nostalgic. You know, it's also kind of fun if you if it's a little bit silly at times and and it's it's, it's kind of jovial is Justice League International, like Booster Gold and and Black Canary and Batman. It's really really good stuff and it's it's underrated in a lot of ways. What may be underrated and deservedly so is Harris Comics cuz they are getting the spotlight in this next article called quote the next hot thing. <laughs> Uh, answer, no. But a rep from Harris says, quote, We're young, we're dynamic. If we could be what Valiant Comics is now in a couple of years, I'll be happy. Man, Valiant was like the gold standard. Everyone was referencing at this time. Just look at what Valiant is doing. Can you believe it? No, oh, we could do that too. I mean, really, they were like what everybody aspired to be. Um, So Vampirella is cited by the publisher as their most popular character, who they knew would sell at least 20,000 copies a month. But they're trying to broaden her appeal by bringing in top writers. So they have Kurt Busiek and then artists like Art Adams and Adam Hughes and Dave Stevens doing covers. They're also pushing a new series called Twister about a serial killer who twists off the heads of his victims who happen to be other serial killers. Ah, what the twist? It's Dexter before Dexter. (laughs) And now he wears an outfit, we've referenced this before, that's nearly identical to the Red Hood costume that Jason Todd war when he returned to gotham years later in the batman book so it is so interesting to just can we speculate on that you know who decided that jason todd would look like this character twister and <laughs> did harris comics have any thoughts on that who knows of course they also have kane which wizard had that tie-in promotion with in issue 20 and finally q unit which is a sci-fi alien freedom fighter team that the harris rep claims will be quote the x-men of the 90s We already have that. It's called (laughs) X-Men. Tom, Adam sent me a copy of this Q-Unit number one here, and I don't want to get into too much detail, but I kept calling it, like, Q-Tip or G-Unit, because it looks kind of like (laughs) G-Unit. And I'm like, are we reviewing this book later? We're reviewing it now, buddy. Tell me Uh, what you thought. Oh, God. While you're thinking, I gotta read the credits of this book, just so you know. Because apparently the guy that is behind this, his name is Carl Allstetter. And if you were really into Image, I guess you would know him. He claims to have worked with Jim Lee on some project at Homage Studios. And that's how he got this gig at Harris Comics, because he called him up and said, I work with Jim Lee. Uh, I've created this story called Q-Unit. Uh, there's interest from movie studios and uh, toy manufacturers. So you you're going to want to get in on this. This is all on the inside cover. And they bit. And so now they're all excited. But this is what it says. So created and written by Carl Allstetter and Robert Napton. Pencils and inks by Carl Allstetter. But the soundtrack by Trent Reznor. That's right. He's listening to Nine Inch Nails while he's drawing this comic. So if you want to get the full Q-Unit experience, throw on your Nine Inch Nails. Oh, okay. It looked like he was having a seizure while he was drawing this. I don't know. (laughs) So I I hate when books start off like brand new 
no backstory, no idea what they are prior, and they just throw you into some sort of crazy action sequence when you know nothing about the characters, nothing about who they are, there's no build-up. And this book started off that way, and I closed the cover. And I was like, oh, man. I, I, it took me about four or five sittings to get from end to end. It would take you that long just to read it. There is so oh. much dialogue. The, the word balloons are gigantic in this book. That's what I was going to get to next. There is so much dialogue and exposition in this thing that I just did not care. I'm like, why am I reading this? I am reading this for you listeners that really want to know about a stupid book that should never have existed in the first place, but it does, <laughs> and I hold it in my hand. Honestly, there's like two interesting things that happen in this book. There's a couple of times where the art turns completely sideways. You have to turn the book sideways twice, and I liked it and hated it in the same moment. <laughs> There's the the cover art that I have, the book wraps around from front, front to back, which I was okay with. That's kind of cool. But inside, there was like one page or one panel where there's these two female characters that look really, really well done. The rest of the art in the book looks like somebody just vomited ink on the page and just said, oh, this sticks. This looks great. Here we go. It's actually fascinating because, yeah, there's that, like, splash page, pinup, whatever you want to call it. And then on the next page, there's, like, you know, a double-page spread of action. And the artist actually signs his initials at the bottom of the page. I saw that. Yeah, and I'm just like, what the? He, like, he was so proud of that work. He's like, people are going to want to put this on their walls. But basic premise, just to catch everybody up here, okay, like a million aliens in this book. There's got to be at least like 25 new characters they're introducing in this first issue. It's like Youngblood all over. Like They introduced like 35 people in the first four pages, and you're like... I don't know what's going on. There's basically like these two warring factions. They want this device that's an Antaran energy chip that can accumulate, store, and redirect psychic energy because there are no shields that can block psychic energy. So it's like the ultimate weapon. But in the mix is this guy named Duarte, Duarte, whatever you want to call it, who is from 1940s Earth, but he got abducted by aliens and now he's in space as like basically like star lord i guess you would call it but he's like a physicist he's a super smart guy and he keeps having flashbacks to his life and the wife and son he abandoned and then he gets linked up with this team where they have to go in and steal this device from the bad guys who have stolen it and you know so it's basically that kind of heist thing and you know unlikely group of people that have to get together and look it's not terrible terrible it's just bloated there's just too much like the art is okay and the dialogue is okay but there's just too much of all of it and so the only character i could see like as a breakout is one of the female warriors called reza and she seems to be the one they're hanging their hat on like oh she's the breakout star but yeah otherwise i don't think q unit ever got any future movie conversations and didn't meet with any studios no q unit action figures unless they were made of q-tips please add in a snoring sound effect for me for that 
uh, <laughs> explanation of this issue, that would be great. Thank you. But the, it, the only thing that would wake you up on the cover, it does say cover to cover action, 32 full pages, layered reality cyber card inside. What was that about? Just like with Kane 1 and 2, you had to get these cards and they said that version 1.1 was available in wizard number 24. The final card will be in Q unit number 2 and then you got number 1 in this book and so it's three different cards you had to put together to create an image. That's what it was all about. Yeah, the, the final issue should have been numbered. <laughs> Again with issue 24 of Wizard. It's big for everybody. But speaking of big, uh, the big guy in the sky, perhaps depending on where you fall, religion in comics is the next article, which seems like it should be the premise of a college thesis. Maybe it has been for some of you. Uh, especially since it amounts to a comparison of comic book mythology and ancient religious texts. So the authors cite how many comics characters have religious origins. You know, Thor is literally a Norse god. Dr. Fate got his powers from Egyptian gods. Captain Marvel's powers come from the Greek gods. Shazam being a word created from the first letters of their names. Dr. Strange deals in mysticism of the Far East. Ghost Rider made a deal with the devil. Spawn is a rebelling general for Hell's army. Mephisto is a fallen angel and the list goes on. Of course, they end by reminding us that comics are modern mythology. Did you guys know that? Have you heard that before? I I've heard that in many ways in many places and, and most notably in the movie unbreakable so <laughs> <laughs> do you guys have a favorite religious superhero or can you make any comparisons here jesus christ superman what i don't know <laughs> <laughs> superman returns in 2006 yes. when he's floating through space the, the passion of superman uh, <laughs> you know i mean you know honestly you know the some of the most religious superheroes that i can think of is a daredevil and Helena Bertinelli Huntress. They're the most, you know, cause I guess because I'm Catholic and, and they're Catholic characters. It's, oh, okay. There's very heavy influences on, like, they both, you know, wear a cross and, and they do confession and things like that. That's the most religious characters, the characters that I can think of. Yeah, that's, I was thinking of Wolf Spain from New Mutants is one. I was thinking Preacher. Oh, yeah, Pre Preacher, that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> kind of on both sides of it there, Preacher. <laughs> yeah. Not going to give a copy of Preacher to your Preacher to read, that's no, for sure. I would, I would <laughs> hope not. Yeah, no. Alright, but uh, staying on the dark side, Going for the Throat is an interview with Ron Wagner, who is a 20-something artist who is drawing the Morbius series for Marvel now. He had previously been the artist on G.I. Joe with Larry Hama, also did the ill-fated Nth Man, the ultimate ninja. Anybody? Nth Man? <laughs> He's one of those white-haired, buzz-cut kind of guys with swords and, uh, and a gun, so... Now we need a car crash sound effect, because... <laughs> <laughs> But despite actually having been in the business for a while, Wagner is being touted as a rising star in the industry. He apparently is also a rock musician like Dale Keown, so he's got a lot of attitude. But frankly, in this interview, he comes off like a whiny little jerk. He complains <laughs> about how the comics code is censoring his vision, and that the previous writer on the book, Len Kaminsky, made Morbius into a boring vampire book. People are just talking all the time. Quote, ideally, they should take the code off morbius because the little fiends want to see blood i can't even do decapitations <laughs> he talks about how he tried to like sneak dirty jokes into like porno theater marquees in the background and they got caught he had to change the names he's like come on <laughs> 
the wizard gives Len Kaminsky a chance to respond, and he claims that Wagner's uh, grasp on reality is tenuous at best, <laughs> because he wrote sarcastic comments in the margins of his notes for each issue that he would send in for him to draw, and despite trying to call Wagner, the artist never actually spoke to Kaminsky to voice his criticism man-to-man. So it seems that Kaminsky was yet another writer casualty at Marvel, much like Chris Claremont, who was basically forced off the book by an egotistical, hot new artist who said, I don't want to work with this guy. Get him out of here. <sighs> Anybody? Ron Wagner? Is he, a, is he a big deal? Is he over at DC doing something? I don't recognize the name, unfortunately. Yeah. Sad, but true. Yeah, but speaking of marquees, Michael, let's see what's over on... Heroes in Motion. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon series is going to air in syndication on the USA Network with 141 episodes plus 13 new episodes never before seen on network TV. Andy Mangles wonders if CBS will drop the TMNT from their lineup, but this does not occur as the show continues on CBS Saturday mornings well into 1996. I find it kind of odd that the episodes would be on usa which is owned by nbc at the time or nbc universal or whatever it's called now or then and cbs is not affiliated with usa network at all that's kind of interesting yeah it's a weird deal it is a weird deal especially if the show is still running like it's not like it's in syndication they bought, bought the rights like you get from like the wb or whatever it is you know when they have seinfeld and all those other things on late at night interesting i was a big fan of the ninja turtles cartoon show and i don't remember the 13 unaired episodes or i know i'm very curious to know what those were what were they talking about i, I remember whenever you watch it in syndication you saw the same 13 episodes 400 times but, <laughs> exactly you know like yeah. that's, that's all i can think of in my brain is like oh the one where they're underground they're going into the uh, big thing underground and they're trying to uh it's technodrome yeah that's what it's called the technodrome yeah yeah, yeah. but like because I, I remember tuning in like in the later seasons like 95 96 and i'm like what they're fighting aliens now and the skies are all red and they got this kid who morphs into a multi-armed alien creature like it, it got so weird at the end but tom you said you had been reading the comics were you reading the archie comics or the eastman and laird comic oh no the eastman and laird stuff okay yeah those are the originals that's cool did they yeah. stay black and white like how long were they black and white oh till the end till issue hmm. 50 the whole yeah. run right yeah. Wow. yeah that's cool so the next thing we've got is cbs has greenlit cadillacs and dinosaurs a cartoon series that they hope will steal a portion of the young male demographic uh, tuning into x-men on fox to switch over to their network i remember this cartoon and unfortunately nope they uh though the series does get a video game and action figures they really didn't get a lot of people remembering it i kind of like vaguely remember it and i was just like i saw the name and i was like oh boy i groaned that's all they had it's like it's a fun name it's like cowboys and aliens and then you see it and you're like nah. <laughs> yeah boo 
Like, it doesn't make sense, though. Like, it just doesn't... Like, how do Cadillacs and dinosaurs... <laughs> like, you gotta read it and find out. Like, maybe, like, monster trucks and dinosaurs. How about that, CBS? There you go. I just pitched you something 30 years later. Enjoy. Um, Wasn't Biker Mice from Mars? Wasn't that, like, the show that followed into it? I think so. I think yeah. Right. yeah. Now, that was a good show. I like that one. If you're gonna get a TMNT ripoff, Biker Mice from Mars was fun, man. <laughs> Oh, boy. Of course you loved it. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we're friends. I get it. (laughs) Wes Craven is still being reported as the director of a Doctor Strange film for Savoy Pictures, and Michael Jackson is reportedly has the superhero film in the works called Midnight, as in like night, you know, night in shining armor or the dark night kind of a thing or moon night, that kind of a night that involved Batman production designer Antoine first, who had recently passed away, put the production on hold. Of course, this production never becomes a movie, thankfully, but you can imagine a Midnight and Moonwalker crossover in the Jacksonverse. <laughs> oh, Come boy. on, Moonwalker is a cool music video movie. It, I it like is, that. It, it is a cool music video movie. It was also a very cool arcade game. As yeah, well. I love the arcade game. I mean, you, you do the dance and you'd like mash it, and then they'd all everyone would like blow up or like there's like they dance with you at first, and then I yes. think they blew up after. <laughs> yes. That was a fun game. Dance I like that him a lot. to death, baby. <laughs> oh, God, dance him to death. That needs to be the cl- quote on our Instagram and Twitter when this episode <laughs> drops. Dance him to death, baby. <laughs> oh, boy. The X-Files is announced as coming to the Fox Network, but with the title that is either misprinted or misreported, as Mangle states, X-File is not about Marvel mutants, but 20th television fantasy horror answer to fan favorite 70s series. Oh, check. I don't know that one. (laughs) I know a lot of 70s shows. I don't know that one. It was with the father from uh, Christmas Story. Yep. Gavin Cloud. What's his last name? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you got it. Yeah, Gavin McCloud. Yeah, Kolchak the Night Stalker. Oh, Kolchak the Night Stalker. I'll have to do a little IMDb research on that because it doesn't ring doesn't ring any bells for me. Which many believed inspired the character of John Constantine. Really? Now I'm very interested in this. This is what I learned when I don't read the notes beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> a little did he know the X File would eventually be popular enough to make a cover of wizard a few years later interesting very very cool i'm impressed i like it so adam what do we have in Azrael's action figure fury Well, we got our special guest here, of course, from ToyLines.com. So we had to make Asriel's Action Figure Fury the centerpiece of this episode. So, in this particular issue, in Toying Around, Brian Cunningham reveals his 10 worst action figures of all time. All right, guys? So, they include... 
The Thing by Mego, which he says was just orange rock design patterns printed on a cloth bodysuit. It pretty much was. A Toy Biz Lex Luthor. He doesn't like it because of its self-punching action feature. You might recall what? that, Michael. I love that figure. I have that thing. I think I even still have that figure. I, I only wanted it. his kryptonite ring. That's what I wanted from that figure. I, I had that, too, because the kryptonite ring, you put it up against Superman's chest, and Superman would repel and fall down. This is a great figure. <laughs> but he also cites it's just an old bald guy in a purple suit. What else could you do? But that's who Lex Luthor is. <laughs> <laughs> but Secret Wars Kang, he says for no other reason than it was a peg warmer. So obviously nobody bought the toy even in the 80s. And he's, he claims you could still find it in some discount stores. Marvel Superhero Secret Wars Kang. Batman Returns Catwoman, which he has called out before for her awkward crouching pose. I know Michael's going to take issue with that. He, does, this, he doesn't know what he's talking about. This is a great <laughs> figure. Like, yeah, some of the stuff on this this list i was looking at it i was like what did you expect back then it was 93 <laughs> he thinks this is one of the he's blasphemy <laughs> i'm gonna find him on twitter he's a potential future guest michael clickety clackety i'm gonna uh... <laughs> A supersize Hulk from Toy Biz, which uh, he says is too skinny and has a dumb grin on its face. It just doesn't look menacing. Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation by Playmates because his stance makes him look drunk. <laughs> he may have been drunk on the show all that time. <laughs> it might be accurate. You never know. <laughs> Sticking with Mego and the bodysuits, the Mego Tarzan, because of a creepy skin-colored bodysuit, and he said they should have done what they did with the Conan figure, which was just give him a loincloth and let the rest of it be the bare Mego base body. Yeah, it looks like he's wearing a sweater. Yeah. <laughs> hey, maybe it is. You know, it gets cold in the jungle some nights, I'm sure. It looks like a onesie for the jungle <laughs> friar tuck from robin hood prince of thieves now this is an interesting one he claims he doesn't like it because it's out of proportion with the rest of the line now as we know tom what was friar tuck originally the gamorian guard yeah from the star wars line so yeah. yes of course he's going to be out of proportion because he does mention that the robin hood figures are just repainted green arrow bodies with a new head which is true so yeah those are, are totally really? different scales yeah, yeah. No. That whole line was just, re they took all the Ewok play sets and vehicles, just repurposed them, and all yeah. of it was Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, was hardly anything original in that. No But way. I mean, wow. I mean, toy companies have been doing that for years. I mean, mm -hmm. you remember a movie with uh, Sylvester Stallone? Demolition Man. Yeah, the body they used on Sylvester Stallone is the new Adventurous He-Man body. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yes, yeah, I believe that, okay, that's yeah. funny. Even, like, if you go for, like, an iconic ones with the Masters of the Universe line, the original, you know, the, he wasn't Cringer in the toy, but, you know, the Battle Cat base figure came from an old, like, G.I. Joe line. It was, like, Jungle Jim. Yeah, Big Jim, yeah. Big Jim, yeah. I love Battle Cat. I still have my Battle Cat. Oh, man. Aww. Love that. Nice. Speaking of Demolition Man, by the way, Stallone is writing a sequel right now. Oh. You might get some new action figures out of that. Well, there'll be a few future restaurant war will it not be taco bell this time if they don't pony up the big bucks we shall see it'll obviously be amazon the amazon <laughs> restaurant yeah. 
So, continue with Brian's list here. The Batman Returns Penguin, which due to the lack of resemblance to his film counterpart, but also, again, just being a superpowers repaint, I was very disappointed back in the day by that. I was bummed by that, because I actually liked the superpowers one with the blue, and then when they dropped this, I was like, it's the same exact figure, and that's why I never bought it, because I was like, I already had the other Penguin when I didn't need the identity. Yeah, it's like, he's just black and red now. Yeah. But the number one worst action figure of all time, according to Brian Cunningham, Bob the Goon. No, no. I have a Bob the Goon on my shelf here. You gotta love Bob the Goon. I love Bob the Goon. That was one of my... <laughs> when they dropped that original line from Batman 89, my mother got me the Batman, the Joker, Bob the Goon, and... And the Batcave. And the only one that lived on for years and years without falling apart like they all would fall apart after a certain point was Bob the Goon. <laughs> I think I had his hat until like the early 2000s when I might have lost it when I was like moving home from college. Like that. I love that figure. How could you not? Like it's such a it's such a weird thing to have because he's just such a strange to me. Well, I mean, that was the thing, like, because Brian says, like, they could have done a Vicky Vale, a Commissioner Gordon. Would you really been happy with a Commissioner Gordon figure? Come on, Alfred or even Alexander Knox. Now, Alexander Knox with the gas mask and a baseball bat, that would have been fun. That would have been fun. Yeah. But instead, they, quote, chose this clown. <laughs> so that begs the question for you guys, though. What is your least favorite or just the most disappointing action figure that you've either bought or didn't buy because because it was such a, a horrendous uh, decision or sculpt or whatever it might have been. Tom, you have many, I'm sure, but <laughs> can you zero in on one? Yeah, the one that springs to mind, I was all excited when Lego announced the Ecto-1 from the Ghostbusters. But oh, it was yeah. it was such a weird build. Yeah. That stuff kept falling off and like the things were... The fell off. The, the, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I still have it. The, the body is rock solid. But right. The but the doors never held on. The lift gate in the back fell off. The whole top like was complete trash. It would yeah. Not... yeah, I was so disappointed. But uh, there is an honorable mention in my collection, though. Jim Lee's Ninja Turtles. Now, the only reason why I'm not thrilled with this was because they never released the Leonardo figure, which I thought was the best designed figure on the line. Is there a story behind that? I don't know, but I remember there are leaked photos of the two up. So he was supposed to go into production, but for some reason they just they killed it with uh, Michelangelo. He was the last one. That is a bummer, huh? All right, what about you, Michael? I have two in my mind that I'm thinking of off the top of my head, both because I just happened to look at them in the past couple of days. When Batman and Robin came out, the movie, they released a like kind of like a redesign of the Michael Keaton, half Bruce Wayne, then you could put something on him and he'd be Batman. But this time, George Clooney's head would push down and the Batman head would go over the top of it. And the thing never stayed down and the, the top would keep popping off and also it looked nothing like George Clooney which is a little annoying it was just some random head sculpt that didn't make any sense and this is gonna get me crushed on uh, on social media but about 10 years ago my wife then girlfriend had gotten me a four pack of the DC Justice figures of Batman Superman Green Lantern and Wonder Woman all designed by Alex Ross and they look like the Alex Ross figures but my 
girlfriend at the time. She's like, why are you keeping them in the box? Take them out. And I'm like, uh, all right, I'll take them out. I took them out of the box. And then I was able to examine them very, very closely. And the face on the Wonder Woman figure is so bad. And even the Superman figure, the face is awful. And it just looks, it's like, this is an Alex Ross designed figure. And it just looks terrible. And the legs are very skinny. They don't stand up right. They constantly fall over because they're too top heavy. They really annoy me. But I, I love them because they were a cool gift. But I hate them because they're poorly made. <laughs> now, for me, I actually mentioned these last episodes. So I'll just go real quick here. But for me, the, the figures I was most excited to run out to the store and buy was I went and saw Street Fighter the movie with Jean-Claude Van Damme. And I was so excited. And then I went to the drugstore and I saw them on there and that they were in this tiny, you know, I, I was spoiled by Toy Biz sculpts and that size of figure. And they were in the G.I. Joe size. And I was just like, and they just, the details weren't that great, especially like Blanca looked dumb, you know. So I was, I was just like, man, it came with weapons to shoot each other with you know launching missiles and they just missed the whole point of, of what could have made some very cool action figures based on street fighter 2 so that's always been my pick because i've just been like ah street fighter <laughs> but oh, maybe boy. sometimes you know there's something that's uh better if you don't get it you know there's just the legend lives on so tom there is some very interesting reporting going on in this issue what can you tell us about a toy line that was never even released so wonder woman and the star riders are also known as the sparkling superheroines as mattel wanted to call them at one time 1992 they wanted to resuscitate the she concept but with an environmental twist to it. Hmm. So they took Wonder Woman and basically they did away with her whole history in the comics and on TV and just revitalized her. They were working closely with Bandai at the time who was having major success in Japan with Sailor Moon. So I'm guessing that's the approach they wanted to take with this. So Mattel went to WB Animation and DC Comics to create a cartoon for it. They even got uh, Jose Garcia Lopez. He's the guy that basically designed all the superpowers. Are yes. yeah. So they put together a presentation for the 93 New York Toy Fair to launch the line in September and in conjunction with the animated show. Now, here's where Mattel failed. They couldn't sell the show. No especially, way, really? Yeah, especially back then, because most female led shows failed for some reason. Uh, you know, this is I like I like Shira. I thought way it was a pretty good show. Oh, I love Shira. And um, it only got as far as script and storyboards. And if you're curious, you can actually see the artwork from the failed show on uh, Les Daniels, The Complete History of Wonder Woman. So Mattel was trying to pitch this line. Now, it was basically set up as Wonder Woman with these four superheroines. Dolphin, which was a very old DC character from Showcase 79. Ice, which was a brand new DC character from 1988. I even think she was in uh, Crisis of uh, Infinite Earths. Then they had two more original characters. Solara, which was a sun-based character, and Star Lily, which had Earth-based plant powers. The villain, which is a total ripoff of Tatra, her name was Persia, and her mount was Panthera. So basically, Mattel was trying to put the carriage before the horse. You know, they had pictures, they had, a, you know, a comic book that was inserted in cereal boxes and Barbies, but nobody really cared about them. Like, even with the, the power of Wonder Woman's name, just wasn't enough to 
get people to buy and purchase this toy. So it failed even before, you know, even before it hit shelves. So Mattel was stressing. And so basically they took the same decos as Shira Princess of Power onto new molds. They even had the same type of horse because Nightshine was basically a repainted Shira horse, which was Swiftwind. Yeah. And another interesting thing, even though the line failed, there were two different versions of the story. The animated one was four girls were chosen by this, you know, mystical being called Starlight. She gave them their new hair colors, costumes, and these star jewels, which protects the Earth. Now, the evil Persia was working for her boss, the Darkness, and she was trying to get the jewels away from the writers. Now, the comic book tells a different story, which is a little bit more interesting. So the girls were not Earth-born, but they were guardians of the Earth, and they reported to the Queen of Amazons. Now, this makes more sense because you're actually using Wonder Woman. So the Queen of the Amazons sent her daughter, Princess Diana, to lead them, and they each had a specific occupation. So Princess Diana, Wonder Woman, was a doctor. Solara was a photographer. Ice... Believe it or not, worked at an ice cream parlor. Dolphin. <laughs> Little on the nose there. <laughs> yeah, Dolphin worked at an ocean world, and Star Lily was a florist. Now, Persia, the villain, she didn't work for anybody. She was just an evil sorceress that on her home world was the heroine. But she was so bad at it that she decided to be evil. That's a pretty good premise for a villain right there. Yeah. So here's how the story ends in, in that first issue. Somehow... Persia lies to Princess Diana with the through the lasso of truth, and she actually ends up stealing the jewels and escapes. And that's how the story ends. Is this the mini comic that came packed with cinnamon mini buns, or is this just the script for the proposed comic book series? Do you know? Because there was a mini comic, and Michael, I know you there love was. the mini comic. And that's like the only thing that was officially released. I love a mini comic, but the fact that you knew it, it came from the Cinnabons. <laughs> like, like, only you would know where the hell that came from. <laughs> like, I was like, what? Yeah, I don't know what food package uh, it came with, but uh, yeah, this was the, the mini comic. Okay, that's pretty cool. Um, I'm tearing up over here left. <laughs> By the way, it goes for $132 online if you want to buy that mini comic, Michael. Wow. So sell no some way. more Funkos. Yeah, seriously. Holy, no way. <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. Now, an interesting tagline to this. So Mattel didn't want to lose money on all the tooling because tooling a figure, you're looking into the millions. Those tools were later used for a Mattel slash Disney princess line called the Four Corners. And it was also used for a failed line called Tenko and the Guardians of the Gemstone. So not only did they actually use the same molds, but they took parts of the story and just rehashed it for uh, the Guardians. How about that? Yes, interesting toy history, things that could have been. But now we know some things that were indeed, and we got to keep the tally running. So, Michael, why don't you take us into Jim and Todd's Hype Machine? So in this issue, Jim is mentioned six times and Todd is mentioned seven times. Now, this brings our total 
the gift that keeps on giving of Adam <laughs> counting all these names through all these issues, Jim is at 136, and Todd is at 123. So Jim is still with a fairly commanding lead of about 13 total counts ahead. Wow. All right. Well, Michael, now it's time to get into Guy Gardner's Gimmicks A Go-Go. How bizarre. All right, this month we got some fun stuff coming out at Image. Jim Valentino's Shadowhawk number two is being printed with a quote die cut mirror card cover. Mirror spelled M I R R I R. Mirror card. Um, so I, I looked it up and I was trying to make sense of it because, you know, photos don't often capture the actual effect on a cover. So this one pretty much just looks like, you know, black and you can just barely see Shadowhawk kind of in a gray outline to him. So I assumed that it actually was like reflective on some level. I don't know, Tom, if you were a Shadowhawk fan. If- oh, yeah. I mean, it broke my heart when I found out Jim Valentino is retired now. Well, he was much older than all those guys, you know? Yeah. So as it comes to him a little sooner than the rest, and they're in their 50s. Also, Wildcats Trilogy number 1 by Jay Lee is coming out, and it features what I'll call a slightly shiny cover. They, they don't list it in the listing here what the effect is called, but I bought it just so I could get the Gen 13 sketches of each of the four characters when they were still called Gen X. And I cut up the book, and I took those pages out and made a, a framed uh, piece of art for my office because I was just like oh what would have been we'll get into those details later on when Gen 13 is about to surface here but at Marvel Warlock Chronicles number one will feature their favorite printing gimmick the holographics foil cover Man, they were just everything Warlock, everything Infinity this, Infinity that. They were trying to get as much money as they could out of that into Infinity and beyond. (laughs) It only took uh, a few more years for that to mean something again and billions of dollars. Continuity Comics, She-Bat number two will feature, get this guys, a glow-in-the-dark fur cover. Ah, are you down with the fur covers, guys? Barf. (laughs) (laughs) And the She-Bat Spawn crossover is slated for issue three, they claim. So if anybody out there was like the Super Spawn fan, and you know this happened, I looked it up, and I didn't see any mention of Spawn. So I'm still like, did he really just pop in on one page, and then they called that a crossover? I don't know. Continuity Comics is also inserting trading cards into their Death Watch 2000 crossover comics that are drawn by Brian Boland and Neil Adams. There will also be short-packed Prism chase cards included with some issues featuring such characters as She-Bat, Firebat, and She-Man? I don't know if this was a misprint or not, because I was like, is it supposed to be Shaman? But they did She-Man? Like, there's no She-Man Masters of the Universe, right, Tom? There's no, no official. <laughs> they never went that. Then we only got she so yeah, anyway. Uh, but additionally, there will be randomly inserted certificates that readers can send in to get a limited edition She-Bat lithograph drawn by Neil Adams. They were banking on this She-Bat character. I, I gotta hear more about who loved She-Bat. She-Bat and why. 
And uh, what was up with that fur cover? Was it supposed to keep you warm at night? Did you <laughs> watch she that? In that warm glow. Yeah, I, I have a gross. feeling it was like that fuzz, you know, kind of like a moss man type fuzz that they probably just very thin. On Funko Pops, they call it a, a flocked or a. Right. Yeah, flocking. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> oh, get the flock out of here. Anyway. <laughs> Omega-7 comic uh, editor-in-chief Alonzo L. Washington. He was originally going to be part of the Anaya comics group we talked about, but he had a falling out with them, so he decided to stick with his own comics. His original man character uh, was the big one, and he is going to package his books with customized condoms to promote AIDS awareness and safe sex, even as a character that fights AIDS. I don't know how you write that in a story. <laughs> like, how are you battling the disease? I know Shadowhawk, again, like, his big deal was he was dealing with that. But in this case, it's like somebody was battling. I, I don't know. I don't know how that what f- form that took. But in the same shape, yet a different material, are the Reign of the Superman Skycaps, a.k.a. Pogs, which is the first mention of collectible milk caps in Wizard. So there you go, 90s kids. Steven Sheamus, who runs the Wizard of Cards section, reports that the sets also include a slammer and notes, quote, It's a pretty fun game, once you learn how to play. I was terrible at Pogs, and I hated playing, even though I had a whole bunch, because I always lost, and I didn't want to give up my Pogs to my friends for constantly losing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I shed a few tears in my day, that's for sure. And speaking of gimmicks, we're ready to give you a double shot of Joe Quesada this month, as the two books he worked on have some intense gimmickry. So it's time for... Robin's Reading Rainbow. And in this issue of Robin's Reading Rainbow, Adam and I are going to discuss uh, two Joe Quesada penciled issues of books. The first one is X-Factor number 92, which kicks off the Fatal Attraction storyline for the 30th anniversary of X-Men. Most people remember these books as ones with hologram sticker on the cover. I didn't read these issues, so I don't remember that, so this is news to me. Most famously, the issue where Wolverine has the adamantium ripped out of his body by Magneto. Now, that I do remember. Okay, that I do remember, very much so. Yeah, I was going to say, everybody has seen that cover. Everybody's seen that image, yes, I do recall that. I remember trying to buy that issue, and it sold out so fast, I couldn't get it. I was so bummed, because I wanted that issue for some reason i just i don't know why if i wanted to see you know, wolverine get tortured or just the, the <laughs> iconic element of that cover and i just couldn't get it i was bummed but this is the start of the story and what do we think about it well adam i'll let you start <laughs> well i mean it's it's well documented as we've been discussing i am a joe casada fan i i do enjoy his work so i can always say that okay if joe casada is doing the art it's at least going to be interesting but as it stands for me, you really have to have good story to back up. You know, like the illustrations can be awesome, but just like we talk so often with uh, many other hot creators, if the story's lacking, ultimately you're not feeling super involved. And even Joe Quesada said uh, when he was being interviewed, and we mentioned at the top of the show, that this was the bottom 
of the X-Men pile, essentially. You know, this is the least popular book. I mean, I guess unless... I don't think Excalibur always counts in everybody's minds, even though that's technically an X-Book to some. But yeah, so to me, like, when I see the Acolytes... I immediately shut down. There is no interest for me. There is no character I have less interest in than Fabian Cortez. I find him to be so stupid because he's just a wannabe Magneto, right? He's like, I think Magneto is the greatest, so I want to destroy humanity because Magneto said we should destroy humanity. He's just a follower. And so I've always just been like, who cares? And they brought him back so often during this time. You were just always seeing the acolytes. So whenever I would check in with the X-Books, I was like, again? No, thank you. (laughs) Still not going to read these. What did you think? So... I'm going to say this in as nice a way as possible. Are you trying to make me hate comics? (laughs) Because so often the books that we pick to read make me want to gouge my eyes out. And this was one of them. If if we're ever going to do an episode that was going to be uncensored, I would have been flying off the handle on these. (laughs) But I had no idea what the heck was going on in half of this issue, which really kind of annoyed me. Exactly. You're kicking off a big storyline. It's it's this convoluted. You're just like, how how can I ever be on board? Yeah, I I was really lost. I really didn't like it. Uh, I thought the art for the most part was was pretty good. Other than, you know, when Quicksilver pops up about halfway through the issue, I didn't know who anybody else was in this entire book, and I didn't care at all. The only thing that I thought was very interesting was early in the book, there's somebody who's got this, like, electrified lasso wrapped around some girl, and he's kind of, like, torturing her. The next page, you kind of see her in a hospital bed, and you see, like, all the burn marks all over her from this lasso. That was the most interesting thing in the entire issue, until the very, very last page mm-hmm. when, when like, Quicksilver's talking to this girl who I couldn't really figure out if it was the same girl or if it was a different girl. I was a little confused, and I, I read it re- relatively quickly because I just wanted to get through it because it was kind of painful at times. And that, like, the last couple of panels in the last page were the most interesting to me other than that one little segment that I mentioned before. Yeah, so the, at this point, I guess, in the X-Factor history, they are part of the government and so they have a government liaison and they and at one point i think they believe that she has betrayed them you know they're they're like what's going on here you know and she's like i'm in charge you do what i say and then they bring on this mutant bounty hunter guy called random who i remember his action figure and i believe they explained that his powers he could turn his like hands or his body into different types of weapons and so they said that when they introduced him the first time everybody was so excited they're like we want more random in your books so joe casada's like we're bringing in random people should be happy but yeah so like you said you get the sentinels at the end and then also partway through the book which i remember this guy's design and i remember him showing up because they had this huge like three or four page insert that they were doing like one month in marvel comics explaining all the huge x-men crossover and this guy's design was in there and so you're like oh this guy's gonna be the big bad or somebody important in this story and he's like basically looks like an angel or something you know he's got these glowing eyes he's got this log flowing white cape and he's just kind of hovering outside their ship and then he flies away 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so obviously that is something that's supposed to pay off later. But yeah, it was just one of those things where I, I just thought to myself, yeah, like if you're not caught up what's going on, I didn't see it setting up very much more. Like I was just like, wait, what am I looking for? Like they think they're going to maybe bring Magneto back. Like uh, then they capture the acolytes then like want to capture Quicksilver. They think that he is supposed to be the one that leads them. But then he's like, no, you know, he's like, what does he say here? He says, I choose where I want to do where I want to go. Go ahead. Kill me. Won't change anything. The truth I bring is what you already know. You are Magneto's son. Magneto's heir. Yeah, there, there is a lot of that stuff. Uh, <laughs> and then, then he just disappears. Fabian Cortez disappears. So anyway, yeah. So overall, it was one of those comics where I was like, yeah, you know, even with Joe Quesada making it visually interesting, couldn't get on board. Now, the next one, I am surprised. Oh. I, I, I got to hear from you, Michael, here, but what are we talking about? So also this month, Adam decided to torture me with reading Joe Quesada's return to his hometown of Valiantville with Exo Manowar number zero, which features a full chromium foil wraparound cover like... Turok the Dinosaur Hunter number one. I actually was able to get Adam an Exo Manowar pin based on that cover, which I'm happy to give it to him because I, I I know his his love for this character. But I'm gonna start off very simply, and this is how I'm gonna start off. Again, reading through this issue, I had no idea what was going on for a large portion of it, and I have to ask, I remember this from the, the number one issue when we read it. Why is this guy always naked? He's like <laughs> naked for 90% of this issue. And I'm like, what is going He's on? He's a Visigoth. He comes from an era where clothes were optional, you know? Oh, just, yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't the main part of their society. But I can sort of understand, like, if you look at it at first, like, really, like, the first, what, like, six or seven pages, there's no dialogue. It's nope. all just imagery. It's just like kind of take you in. Okay, there's an alien world and you don't really know what's happening other than there seems to be some trees and some juices and <laughs> some orbs. And then they're pumping juices into some other creature who explodes. Yeah. But I mean, then it comes so, together. So so the beginning, those, those like six pages of just imagery, which was kind of cool. I, I, I was I was on board for that. But then it kind of I didn't know where we were going, like where we like at one point they're like inside of some sort of creature. Then they're not. Then they are. It was like it was almost as if they were inside some sort of like Earth's core almost. It felt like and they were just kind of like, I I don't know. It was way outside of my wheelhouse of like what is going on. So just to explain in case it didn't ever come together for you, what they're doing there, that's how they create an exo armor. So they basically, like, plant the seed from all this stuff inside of one of their own, and then it uses the body to grow, and then it turns into this little orb afterwards that is the exo-armor. So so it it has, like, a sentient being inside of it and all this stuff. Uh, but But then the rest of the issue is an origin story for Eric, you know, so who who is the owner of the Exo Manowar armor that we follow. Right. So this is literally a prequel to that first issue. Th- that part I got. Like, I, I figured it was, you know, when you see that he's like kind of an almost, let's put it, 
this way. It's almost like he's in like ancient Rome in mm-hmm. a way. Yeah. Is where he where he is, and he's got a sword. Again, he's still relatively naked throughout the into- entire time, more or less. And you're learning about who he is. And then I, I get lost because it kind of like we leave there relatively quickly, and then we're back inside of this whatever, and he's the thing is growing again. And this is where I kind of like checked out a little bit on it. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, so you kind of see just his daily life. You see his dad get killed by the Romans, so you learn why he hates the Romans, and that he's, you know, battling. He frees this slave girl, and she becomes his wife, and all that kind of stuff. But then they come upon the spider aliens, as they're known, uh, and they are on Earth for some reason. And so, yeah, he gets abducted, and now he is their prisoner, because they like his fighting spirit. The one part that was super gross, though, is that one guy, like, vomits some sort of... uh, Oh, that was gross. gross. (laughs) I, I guess it was some sort of like thing that knocks him out. But now you had to have gotten a kick out of the fact, though, that when he's working as a slave, there is Elvis Presley has been abducted by aliens, and he is the one who is called the map giver. I did catch that, because I actually had to do like a, almost like a double take. I'm like, is that supposed to be Elvis? And then I'm like, <laughs> realized, I'm like yeah, that's supposed to be Elvis Presley. I'm like, okay, alrighty. And it was kind of cool. It was like a cute little nod, and it, it, was, it was interesting. It definitely made, gave me a good laugh. But again, then we're back here just them being naked, sitting inside of like the carcass of some creature, and it's just like absorbed, you know, skeletons and like rib cages just lying around them i was like what yeah this it's definitely so very confusing. organic whatever they're uh, hanging out inside but yeah it's, but it's interesting because like when you read the first issue there's a lot of stuff that's not explained who is the map giver now we know it was elvis and who was attacking the ship so that all the spider aliens were distracted so that eric could escape with the exo arbor well it was solar man of the atom so he was outside the ship attacking we didn't know that was the case and then now he's got this map and you know these last few moments where it's basically recreating the first issue in a much more dynamic and exciting yeah. style that then it gets pretty fun to watch that kind of got interesting like once solar man of the atom shows up it's like oh, okay all right i was i was i was on board he, he's an interesting character i'm learning about him and then you know like you said the the actual showcasing of how he gets the armor was much better explained or at least better showcased mm-hmm. in this zero issue than it was in issue one i loved how they did the map do you want to explain how they what they did with the map uh, how we figured out the way to get out yeah, so Elvis actually carves the map into his palm. It's pretty cool looking. Yeah, that was pretty cool. That was that was interesting. That was a good a good move. I, I I liked that. It was it was well thought out and it was very interesting. And then like when you actually see him becoming one with the armor, it, w- it was a pretty cool shot. It's very like reds and pinks and stuff like that with like these like beams yeah. of light almost coming well, out. What, what's it- nice about it is that it it's a different use of the Valiant color scheme. Because that's the thing. Valiant always had kind of very muted colors in their books. Their writing was awesome, but their art wasn't always super dynamic. And here, with Joe Quesada getting involved, you're like, wow, they can do some good work if they have the right, you know, artistic perspective behind them. Someone who says, no, 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 we got to ratchet up, you know, the colors, super saturated, not desaturated. It also was interesting, like, how they showcased how he more or less blasts to earth in a way i guess Mm -hmm. let's put it this way if i had to rate this issue versus the issue one if i were to give like issue one a grade 
probably like a B minus. This is probably more like a B plus, I feel like, because there's certain things that I thought were really cool about it. I think artistically it looks a lot more interesting. I like the backstory and, and kind of explaining how he got the armor better. And what also was kind of nice about it is it does kind of tie other elements of the Valiant universe together. Like when you see solar pop in and, and stuff like that it kind of shows that there this being this exo manowar lives inside of the same universe which is, which i was pleased about and then what's your grade for x factor 92 oh you don't want to know uh i mean art wise it's very nice again like it's a very good well-drawn book story wise it's just i couldn't get into it I'm going to give it a hard C on this one. Okay. Well, yeah, so for me, X-Factor 92 is a D. It just gets a little bit of a raise because, like, you did a great job packaging it. But otherwise, nothing here I want to see. And, of course, Exo Man War Zero, that's an A+. I mean, all around. <laughs> Gives <laughs> me everything I want. I've read that first issue <laughs> so many times. And then to just get it presented and expanded upon in such a wonderful way. Yeah, that's, that is fantastic. So, there you go robin's reading rainbow well tom we really want to thank you for joining us this was such a fun conversation i mean your your comics knowledge and your toy knowledge but why don't you uh, tell people where they can find you online and what your podcast and your website's all about yeah you can find us at www.toy-lines.com for all the latest toy reviews. You can join us in the conversation with our Toy Lines podcast. You can email us at toyspodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on all the major platforms, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts. And you can find us on social media at Toy Lines, Twitter, and Instagram, and then Facebook, we actually have two names, at Toy Lines, or to, you can find us at Toy Shelf Magazine. So thank you guys very much for having me. Thank you for coming on. It was fun chatting with you, and I, I, I always learn something new, whether it's from Adam or from our guests, so I find that very enlightening for me. So thank you for sharing all that knowledge. I mean, the amount of research you guys must do to find out the backstory of all these action figure lines, it's impressive. I was really blown away. Yeah, yeah. We're actually doing two more shows. My co-host, Ian, he'll be doing Rocketeer Radio, which is nothing but a history lesson on the Rocketeer himself. Sign me up. Tune in for that, yeah. Yeah. I love the Rocketeer. One last thing, I just want to give a quick shout-out. Do you guys remember when the Wizard conventions were actually good? (laughs) Never got to attend one, unfortunately. I never went either, but I always heard of these conventions. They were the best conventions ever. And really? hands down, one of the leaders of the conventions was a, a young lady named Jody Westhoff. She worked tirelessly, and she put on a great show. I wish conventions were like that to this day, but it just not even close. So I just wanted to give a shout-out to her. That's the show for this week, so we hope you had some fun along with us talking action figures, comics, and more. And you can continue the conversation with us on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore Comics. Hey, you want a little extra content? Why not go over to our YouTube page? We only have one video up right now, but in the meantime, we hope that you will anticipate some other fun bonus episodes we have planned. Yes, Steven Sapelis will be joining Michael again to get into the excitement of Roger Corman's unreleased Fantastic Four movie. Yes. So that will be coming later this month. And until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded.
has been a presentation of the Retro Network.